Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, There Is No Them. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February the 1st, 2015. I recently read two books by very different authors that both make the same provocative point. One was by a Muslim teenager. The other was by an evangelical pastor. Both authors struggle with what Deuteronomy 18 for this week calls the detestable practices of the pagan nation. Outrageous things like child sacrifice. Only in this case, the authors lament the detestable practices not of other religions, but of their own people. The first book is by Brian Zond. It's called A Farewell to Mars, 2014. And it's a good example of why it's misleading to make dismissive generalizations about evangelicalism which for a long time has been a more complex and interesting movement than its detractors have acknowledged. <clears throat> Zahn founded the Word of Life Church back in 1981. Today, it has a 2,500-seat sanctuary that sits in the middle of a cornfield 30 minutes north of Kansas City. Those demographics sound like a perfect setup, but Zahn breaks the stereotypes. His book describes how he repented from what he calls my worst sin ever. I am sure he would resonate with the language of Deuteronomy 18 for this week about the detestable practices of God's people. No, he didn't embezzle money or sleep with his secretary. In his description, it was far worse than that. It took 15 years, but in 2006, he had an epiphany of how back in 1991, he was a cheerleader for America's first Iraqi war called Operation Desert Storm. He describes how he and his friends ordered pizza and watched the war on television, how they hooped and hollered, how he prayed war prayers and preached war sermons to his congregation, and they loved it. He writes, how I reached the point where I could weep over war and repent of any fascination with it is part of what this book is about. <clears throat> it's the story of how I left the paradigms of nationalism, militarism, and violence as a legitimate mean of shaping the world to embrace the radical alternative of the gospel of peace. Today, Zahn repudiates the detestable practices of a privatized piety that is merely spiritual and only for a future in heaven. He's no longer a chaplain to the state who offers innocuous invocations for a Constantinian Christianity. He's shocked to remember how he promoted sacred violence against fellow human beings. And so, having bid farewell to the Roman god of Mars, the last chapter of his book is only one sentence. 
It casts a positive vision for the people of God. He writes, There is no them, there is only us. The Muslim teenager Malala Yousafzai arrives at the same point in a different way. <clears throat> she tells her story in her autobiography, I Am Malala, 2013. The, the book describes how Malala turned her personal tragedy into a global mission. Like Zahn's repentance of the practices of some Christians, Malala reputes the detestable practices of the Taliban in her beloved Pakistan. Malala was 11 when the Taliban took over her Swat Valley in northwestern Pakistan in 2008. They bombed everything in sight, power stations, a ski lift, hotels, funerals, and over 400 schools. They conducted public whip whippings and hangings. They beheaded over 1,400 fellow Muslims. Police were so terrified of being murdered that they took out newspaper ads to announce that they had quit the force. The Pakistani army eventually rooted out the Taliban, or so they said, but the troubles continued. Malala's father received death threats, which wasn't a surprise given that he was an outspoken political activist who had founded a major school that educated girls. He even kept a copy of Martin Niemöller's famous prayer in his pocket. At night, after everyone was asleep, Malala would get up and make sure all the doors and windows in the house were locked. By this same time, at the age of 11, young Malala had emulated her brave father. She wrote a diary for the BBC Urdu station under a pen name that described life under the Taliban. She gave interviews on Pakistani national television. The New York Times did a documentary about her. She had won numerous academic awards. She knew she wanted to be a politician. But then came October 9, 2012. When she was 15, a Taliban gunman fired three shots at point-blank range at Malala as she rode home on her school bus. One shot hit her, and the other two wounded her two classmates. After a miraculous recovery in England, the attempted murder catapulted her onto the stage of a global campaign. On her 16th birthday, she spoke at the United Nations. And in October of 2014, at the age of 17, she became the youngest, youngest recipient ever of the Nobel Peace Prize. On those scary nights when she double-checked all the doors and windows, Malala also prayed. She writes, and here I quote, At night I used to pray a lot. I'd pray to God, bless us, first our father and family, then our street, then our whole district, and then all of Swat. And then I'd say, no, all Muslims. And then 
No, not just all Muslims. Please bless all human beings. Today, Malala is an outspoken critic of all forms of detestable practices done against all people, and in particular against women and girls. Stated positively, she's an advocate for the inherent dignity of all human beings. Her journey from the isolated Swat Valley in Pakistan has taken her to the same place as Brian Zahn. There is no them. There is only us. The Gospel for this week from Mark chapter 1 describes how the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. What was so amazing, so new, so authoritative about Jesus? I believe that it's that Jesus brought healing and wholeness in all he said and did. He drove out evil spirits. He embraced everyone and excluded no one. There is no them. There is only us. And so with Malala, we work and pray for God's blessing on every human being. For further reflection, we've included the poem that I mentioned earlier that Malala's father carried in his pocket. It's by the Lutheran pastor Martin Niemöller. Niemöller lived from 1892 to 1984. He protested Hitler's anti-Semite measures in person to the Fuhrer. He was eventually arrested and then imprisoned for eight years. He once confessed famously, it took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He is not even the enemy of his enemies. The poem describes the passivity of German intellectuals as the Nazis purged group after group of targeted people. The poem comes in many slightly different versions, and its exact origin is the subject of some debate. Martin Niemöller, first they came. First they came for the communists, but I was not a communist, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the socialists and the trade unionists, but I was neither, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the Jews, but I was not a Jew, so I did not speak out. And when they came for me, there was no one left to speak out for me. For books this week, I review a biography by John Drury. It's called Music at Midnight, The Life and Poetry of George Herbert. Chicago, University of Chicago Press, 2013. This book is 396 pages. When George Herbert, 1593 to 1633, 
died one month shy of his 40th birthday. None of his poems had been published. Rather, on his deathbed, he gave his poems to his friend Nicholas Farrer with the instructions that they be published only if they might help, quote, any dejected poor soul, end quote. He said his little book of 160 poems contained, quote, a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus, my master, in whose service I have found perfect freedom. Farrar published the poems just month after Herbert's death under the title The Temple. By 1680, the book had gone through 13 editions. Herbert's poetry reflects his lifelong struggle between his aristocratic background and secular ambitions, and his eventual choice to serve the last three years of his life as a country priest in rural England. His only prose work, called The Country Parson, was a reflection on his pastoral experiences. In this biography of Herbert, John Drury, himself an Anglican priest with a lifelong interest in Herbert, brings together Herbert's life and his poetry. That takes some creative imagination because Herbert's poems were also not dated. Herbert lived what he calls a quiet life with a crisis in the middle of it. Born to wealth and privilege, he studied at Cambridge where he earned a reputation for his innate snobbery and ascetic temperament. He also distinguished himself as one of the best Latinists of his age, both oral and written. After 15 years at Cambridge as a student and then its public orator, with an eye toward becoming Secretary of State for England, Herbert became disillusioned. He went through a six-year period that Drew recalls a crisis of identity. But one way and another, he writes, clerical life was a fulfillment, a coming to rest and a social use of Herbert's resources as gardener, scholar, poet, and counselor. These last three years of his life as a pastor were what Drury calls well-occupied and happy. In one of the book's most interesting chapters, Drury reviews how contemporary critics, both religious and non-religious, have viewed Herbert's poetry. Drury's interpretive North Star for Herbert is his poem, Love Three. Simone Weil called it the most beautiful poem in the world. Here it is. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first interest in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. 
Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. John Drury, a biography of George Herbert. It's called Music at Midnight. For movies this week, I review a documentary called Citizen Four from 2014. In January of 2013, the filmmaker Laura Poitrist received several encrypted emails from an anonymous government analyst called Citizen Four, who said that he could prove that the NSA conducted a massive, illegal, and worldwide surveillance program. In June, she traveled to Hong Kong with Glenn Greenwald and Ewan McCaskill of the Guardian newspaper, where for 20 hours across eight days they filmed Edward Snowden in a hotel room. He explained who he was, what he was doing and why, the scope of the NSA program, and then gave them his trove of classified documents. All this was before anything had gone public. Then on June the 5th, 2013, the Guardian published its first article on the story. The proverbial feathers then hit the fan, as Snowden watched it all unfold from his hotel room. He left the hotel, vanished into Hong Kong while he sought asylum, and eventually ended up in Russia. This film is a real-life political thriller happening right before your eyes. For a feature-length article by George Packer on Laura Poitras in this film, see The New Yorker from October 20th, 2014. Once again, Citizen Four. And finally, for poetry, we have a poem. We've posted a poem called The Letter. The author is Dr. John Ashley from Jerusalem. The first time was shortly after the funeral. I have, of course, kept your clothes more precious by far than my own. They hang side by side in my wardrobe. The most precious is the camouflage denim top, which I loved wearing because I knew it was yours. When you had gone, Mum told me just how much you had loved wearing it in the garden, as it was mine, knowing that it is poignant. It is our denim, Dad. I checked the suits, then the army dress uniform and coats. The suits you had worn before you retired early at 60 on health grounds. In the five years remaining, you had little need of them. You wore the blue one to your granddaughter's christening, then to your elder son's wedding, college chapel style. 
There you are in the photographs, carnation on lapel, your military bearing and brave smile. I started with the outer pockets, I'm sure, then those inside. The gray jacket first, then the blue, the two trousers, uniform and coats. Nothing found. Then the denim top, the most likely candidate, but still nothing. Sometime later, I checked again, in case I had missed a pocket. Now, thirty years on almost to the day, I may check them again, for something still missing, an account in arrears. I'm looking for a last letter, but no joy, as you sometimes said. A letter for me, like you used to send from your annual army camps at Catterick or on Salisbury Plain. A note to me folded in an envelope addressed to Mom. I realize now with redeeming common sense that I never told you how much those letters meant. Through fluent laconicism of adolescence. How I longed for them during summer vacations from school. Read them many times. I awaited the postman for a letter in your hand for Mom. Had I told you all this, you may have written to me as your strength failed towards the end. With me in Africa. Even though I knew what you'd say with your last breath. Assurance that we meet again soon. Look after Mom and baked beans, a family shibboleth. Maybe you could not say goodbye, thereby saying there could be no goodbye between us. We both know this truth, death the impostor. You have not gone far just to lock up the church, as you did each night for 25 years as church warden, in which you said that day Mum nearly died. Yet to save wear and tear, you'd shed that role long since. I divined your intent in a flash, to kneel at the altar in prayer. Okay, Dad, I replied, knowing more than you knew. And church is where you went when you died, knowing more than I knew. Don't be afraid, Mom heard herself say to you as she left the ward that night. You looked her straight in the eye. I'll not be afraid you said, and within minutes you were gone. Those last few words, Dad, of certainty, already at peace with the Lord, comprise the best letter from you I never had. Dr. John Ashby, Ashley, from Jerusalem. The poem is called The Letter. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February the 1st, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.